1: Welcome. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. We are honored that you've chosen to start your week off by worshiping with us here at Quad City Christian Church. want to welcome all of those who are joining us online from whenever and wherever you are. So grateful to have you with us and look forward to the day when we get to worship together in 3D. So we'd welcome you to come and join us at one of our campuses. And speaking of campuses, I want to welcome all of those who are worshiping in Prescott Valley today. So grateful to have you with us this morning. And for all of those here in Prescott, grateful for you as well. If you are a newcomer in any of our venues, we'd love to have an opportunity to connect with you uh, here at Prescott. If you go out in the lobby, off to the left, we have a place we call Pastors Point, And I'll be hanging out there after the service along with some of our other pastors and would welcome you to come by and introduce yourself. There in Prescott Valley, you can always stop by Connection Central. Our pastors be hanging out there as well. And always online, you can jump on the chat or shoot us an email through the website, and we'd love to connect with you as well. Well, if you uh, have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them on or turn them to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, that's where we're going to be today. Again, if you're a newcomer, we've been working our way through this book of the Bible we call Romans. It's, it's not really a book. It's actually a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of believers in the city of Rome. And he has not yet met these people. He's only heard about them. In fact, as far as we know, there's not been any um, uh, apostles that have gone to Rome at this point, uh, but he wants to make sure that they know the gospel. And so he writes He writes the gospel down. He writes this teaching down. And most of Paul's letters are long. Like in the ancient world, most letters were somewhere around 200 words. The average of Paul's letters are about 1,300 words. But the book of Romans goes so far beyond. It is 7,114 words. Like it is a huge manuscript because he wants to as clearly as he can go in depth to help them to know the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And so today we're going to pick up where we left off last week. So we've been building each week uh, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Would always encourage you to go back if you've uh, missed out on any. But today we're going to pick it up at verse 26. And as we've done throughout this series, I'm going to invite you, wherever you are, if you would mind to stand as we read the Word of God together today. And then after we read it, uh, then I'll pray, and then we will work our way through it this morning. This is the Word of the Lord. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Father, thank you for... Your word, thank you for the promises that it contains in it. And my prayer today is that as we uh, dive in, that you would speak to us wherever we are today. God, use your word by your spirit to change your people. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you. Now, um, as we get into our text this morning, I do need to remind us of the kind of the overarching context of this chapter. So again, they all build off of each other. We can't just take little segments by themselves. And kind of the overarching idea that Paul's addressing here is God working in the midst of suffering. These are great promises for those who are suffering. And who gets to suffer? Everybody. He says, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If, If indeed we share in his sufferings, In order that we may also share in his glory. So, if you want to be a part of the glory of Jesus, first you have to be a part of the sufferings of Jesus. So, everybody gets to play along here. So, this is the context. Paul makes it clear if you want to be a child of God like Jesus, to inherit all the blessings that belong to Jesus, it requires that you're going to suffer like Jesus. Then he continues as you go through the rest of that chapter, he talks about. The suffering that we endure is just part of being in a world that has been cursed by sin. And he says, and and it's not just us who are suffering. All of creation is groaning under the weight of sin. All of creation is being held in bondage to decay. All of creation is waiting to be liberated from this curse. And And the image that he uses, it's like childbirth, which means the closer we get to that day of liberation, the more frequent and ferocious the suffering becomes. But and here's the good news. Paul says, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. He recognizes we're Presently, suffering, everybody is suffering on some level. But he says, but look, when you take our suffering, and this is what we talked about last week, and you begin to understand that your suffering in this life is just a small piece of your existence. And when you compare it to the eternity that is to come in Jesus, no amount of suffering, if you suffer from the day you are born to the day you die, no amount of suffering can compare to the glory that is revealed in Christ Jesus. And so whatever suffering you endure, it is light and momentary compared to what is to come. And so he's encouraging us, don't quit, don't give up, don't walk away. It will get hard and it'll only get harder till we're liberated, but it only lasts such a short time. It is so short. And the glory on the other side of that suffering is eternal. So don't
2: quit. Anchor your hope, not in what you see, but in the glory that is unseen. So again, that's
1: that's what he tells us as he's leading up into the text today. It's what he's already told us in the book, I'm sorry, in chapter 8 of Romans. That it is our hope, not in what we see, but in what we don't see, that keeps us going. Brings us to our text today. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So just as our hope in glory helps us to get to that moment, he says we're not just left with hope. God's also given us his Spirit to help us in our weakness. Now, I need to talk about weakness for just a moment. If you've ever been on a job interview, or you've ever had to give a job interview, you've probably had, or maybe you've asked these questions yourself: What are your strengths, and what are your weaknesses? Like that's everybody gets asked that, and you you are likely able just to rattle off your strengths and tell them about how great you are. And when it came to well, what are your weaknesses? you fed them some kind of lie like, I just work too hard. You know, that's, that's my weakness. I just don't know how not to be great. Where I just demand so much of myself and everybody around me, sometimes it's hard for me to adjust to the fact that everybody's not as awesome as me. And so I'm just, just got to work on that part. Like for The, the truth is, more, more often than not, we see our strengths more than our weaknesses. And our weaknesses, well, we just see them as something that just kind of show up every now and then when we haven't had enough sleep or we've had a bad day. But that is not how Paul sees our weakness. When he's talking about our weaknesses here, when he says that, He helps us in our weakness. What he's talking about is helps us in our life, in this body that we right now are living in weakness, that we are all plagued by sin. Our body, as we've talked about for the last few weeks, Paul's made it clear again and again, our body is decaying. We are groaning more and more every day. All of of creation is subject to frustration, and we are no exception. Like in this life, we're living in weakness. We get sick, and we get tired, and we get emotional. We are weak. Now one day that will change. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, so will it be at the resurrection of the dead. There's going to be a day when Jesus comes back, and weakness will be no more. There will be a resurrection of the dead. The body, this body that we're walking around, living in right now, that body will die and will, is sown perishable. It's perishable. It's rotting. It'll turn back to dirt. It is perishable. But that body that is sown perishable, it will be, will be raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it will be raised in glory. It is sown in, what's this word? And we try that again. It is sown in what? Weakness. We are weak. And it's going to get weaker before you die. It's going downhill. It is sown in weakness. But, 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 it is raised in power. It's raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. These bodies, this life, we are in weakness. And it's getting weaker every day. And one day. This body will be sown into the ground like a seed planted. And when it gets raised, it will be weak no more.
2: It will be raised in power. But so far, that day is not today. We are living in weakness. again. But the good news is, according to Romans
1: 8.18, we are not left alone in our weakness. In the same way, the Spirit of God helps us in our weakness. Question becomes, now, how does the Spirit of God help us in our weakness? He answers the question. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Now, many of you you grew up in church world. You've heard this before, and you've heard about the Spirit praying for us. How many of you all familiar with this little promise and text? Okay, many of you. Here's the problem. Most of us have a tendency to add a word to this passage.
2: We stick a little word in there that's not actually in the text. See it? Here's where it belongs. Most of us have added a word right here. And the word we add is when? Let's read it this
1: way. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. When we do not know what we ought to pray for, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with wordless groans. We like to add this little word in there, because it makes us feel better about ourselves most of us add this word when in there and the reason we do that is we in our minds we read it as if most of the time i'm good i know what to pray for i know how to pray i know i know what and when and where to pray i am good but there are those rare just rare occasions where I'm lost and I'm stumped and I don't know what to pray for. But the good news is I can call to the bullpen and God sends in the Spirit who prays on my behalf until I can get back on my feet and pray correctly again. And we're lucky that we have a backup plan by the
2: Spirit. But I want you to see today, that's not what this text says. What this text says is that we are weak. Like, this
1: text assumes that we are not strong, we are not wise. This text does not assume that we can manage on our own, specifically in the area of prayer. Paul comes right out and says emphatically, we do not know what we ought to pray for. We don't know. You think you know, but you don't know. You wish you knew, but you don't know. He says, we do not know what we ought to pray for. Why? Because we're weak. Because we have been infected and affected by sin. Our hearts are messed up. Our brains are messed up. We live by the flesh. We don't know what we ought to pray for. You think you do, but you don't. It reminds me of this Chinese proverb that I ran across a couple of months ago. It goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a Chinese farmer whose horse ran away. That evening, all of his neighbors came around to commiserate. They said, we are so sorry to hear your horse ran away. This is most unfortunate. The farmer said, maybe. The next day, the horse came back, bringing seven wild horses with it. And in the evening, everybody came back and said, oh, isn't this lucky? You now have eight horses. What a great turn of events, the farmer again replied. Maybe. The following day, his son tried to break one of the horses. And while riding it, he was thrown and broke his leg. The neighbor said, oh, dear, that is too bad. And the farmer responded, maybe. The next day, the conscription officers came around to conscript people into the army. And they rejected his son because he had a broken leg. And again, all the neighbors came around and said, isn't that great? And again, he said, maybe. The point is this. The farmer could never tell whether or not what happened to him was good or bad. Because he didn't know what was going to happen next. He didn't know if it was good or bad because he didn't know what was going to happen next. The only way we can know if something is good or bad is if we know what's going to happen next. And so it is with so many of our prayers. We pray for something and it doesn't come to pass and we get upset only then to have something better happen. And we're so grateful that God didn't answer our prayer. Or we pray for something to happen, and it happens exactly like we prayed. But because it does, we end up losing out on something much better. It was just around the corner that we didn't see. And again, don't forget the context of all of this conversation. It's all about suffering. And when do we pray? We pray in the midst of suffering. Everybody everywhere prays in the midst of suffering. We all pray for health and for healing. We pray for the pain to stop. We pray for relationships to be restored. We pray for the accident to be undone. We pray for protection from danger or protection from the consequences of our decisions. We pray that our life will be spared and that our family will be safe like suffering makes us to pray. And when we pray, most
2: of the time we are praying blind. Because we don't know what's going to happen next. But it isn't so with the Spirit. So, in the same way,
1: the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Good news is that we have the spirit in us and he meaning God, he who searches our hearts, the father who knows us inside and out. He's searching the depths of our actual needs. He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit. Like those two are working together because the spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with what? With the will of God. Like, like, What this text says is that the Father and the Spirits are in cahoots. Father knows what's in our heart, knows what our needs are, and the Spirit is working in us and then interceding for us, trying to get our hearts and God's will moving in the same direction. That's what the Spirit does. To to get our hearts and God's will moving in the same direction. Knowing God's will and knowing our deepest needs, the Spirit prays for those things to come together, for God's will to be done in our life. And I'm convinced that about half of my prayer time, when I'm probably more than half, I'm convinced in most of my prayers, the Spirit is saying, ah, don't listen to Him. Like, yeah, I know what he's saying. He's got to, he's trying, he's trying, but he don't know. He doesn't know. He don't know what he wants. He doesn't know what he needs. And he certainly doesn't understand all that you're trying to accomplish in in, in his life and in this world. So I let's, a good on him, good try, but don't listen to him, father. He's praying. The Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with God's will. He doesn't understand what you want Him to do.
2: So don't listen to Him. Do this instead. Now, does that mean that we should stop praying? No,
1: 100%. It should not stop us from praying. Not at all. God wants us to pray. He wants to build a relationship with us through prayer. We should keep praying. But we're going to learn in chapter 12 of Romans. What he says in chapter 12 is that, that we got to keep renewing our minds that we got to get into the word of God and we got to keep trying to fill our hearts and fill our minds with the word of God so that we can test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Like the more we get to know God, the more we get to know his word, the more we're going to understand his will, the more it's going to transform our mind, the more that we're going to actually begin to pray for the things that God actually wants. The more that we're going to actually desire the things that God wants to see in our life. So we got to keep on praying. But that's never going to be perfected this side of heaven. Not while we still live in weakness. in the weakness of our sin-filled, cursed bodies with minds that are broken and flesh that's alive. Like we'll never get this right. And so until that day when the resurrection happens, we just thank God that He didn't leave it up to us and He gave it to His Spirit to intercede on our behalf because we don't know what we need to pray for.
2: Now, right on the
1: heels of this amazing thought that the the Spirit is interceding for us, we're given this one of the most amazing promises, not just most amazing promises in the book of Romans, probably one of the greatest promises in all of the Scripture, one that most of you know very well. And we know. That in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. That God, God is working all things. You know what is included in all things? All things. Specifically in this text, all the bad things. All the suffering. That's what he's pointing to in the context of this passage. All the suffering we know that God works all things, all of that suffering. God works for the good. He doesn't need to work the good things in your life for the good because it's already good. He's working all the bad things, all the hard things for the good. And this verse is often used to 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 share with people in the midst of their pain as an encouragement in the time of their suffering, as it should. That's the context. That's what it was given to us for. All things, all suffering, whatever category of suffering you can think of, physical suffering, relational suffering, spiritual suffering, emotional suffering, financial suffering, political suffering, environmental, marital parental whatever kind of suffering that you can think of it's included in this all things god is working for the good like we love this promise many of you have it on a coffee cup you've got it crocheted on a pillow it's hanging in a frame on your wall we love this promise Some of you even have it as a tattoo on an arm somewhere. We love this. God's working it for good. We love this. But there are are a couple of things that we need to understand about this promise that I think many of us
2: neglect. And the first one is that this promise does not apply to everyone. Promise doesn't apply to everyone. This
1: is a very specific promise for a very specific group of people.
2: And we know that in all things God works for the good, and here's the caveat, of those who love him. God's working for the good of those who love him. He's not working for good for everyone he's working for the good
1: of those who love him and, th- and there's this sentiment that gets kind of passed around in our culture and in, in our world that says to everyone everywhere hey that this bad thing that is happening to you it's happening for a reason there is a purpose behind it and we tell each other this in the midst of our suffering because we would hate to think that our suffering is pointless and so we point to some kind of cosmic good that's going to come out of this bad thing that's happening in your life and the reality is that isn't promised to everyone god is working for the good of those who love him
2: and that's it Why would He work for the good of those who hate Him? Why would God work for the good of those who
1: reject Him? Why would God work for the good of those who disavow Him? Why would God work for the good of those who mock Him with their life and their words? Why would would He do that? It doesn't make sense. This promise doesn't apply to those people. This promise only applies to those who love him. For everybody else, they are
2: going to suffer. And chances are their suffering is not going to bring about any good. This promise is for those who love him. Which begs the question, do you love him? Like, do you love him? I didn't ask you if you believed in Him. I didn't ask if, you're, if you fear Him. I'm asking, do you love Him? Because there's an affection in you that desires to to follow after Jesus, because He's all you want. Do you love Him? That's who this promise. to. So that's that's the first qualifier.
1: Here's the second one. This promise is given to those who love him and those who have been called according to his purpose.
2: For those who've been called according to his purpose, which begs the question, well, what's his purpose? What's he trying to accomplish?
1: And the answer to that comes to us in the very next verse. He explains us what God's up to what's he trying to accomplish what's his purpose for those God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the to the image of his son i keep wanting to say likeness that's an old version to conform to the image of his son like that that's what he that's his purpose that's what he's trying to accomplish in your life he is predestined like that's, that's what he's trying to get you to. That's what he decided beforehand. He decided beforehand that he wants to make you into the image of Jesus. To be conformed into the image of his son. And for way too many of us, we've disconnected Romans 8.28 from Romans 8.29. These things go together. God's ultimate purpose for your life is to conform you to the image of his son. That is his ultimate goal.
2: That is the good that he is working all things toward. That's the good. So, well, what's the good that he's working out? This.
1: He's working all things for the good. And what's the good? To conform you to the likeness of Jesus. Again, far too many of us miss this. Like we tell people, hey, you lost your job. That's so so bad. The good news is the reason you lost your job is because God has a better one in store. Like your husband left, good. He was a bum anyway. God is working for your good to bring you a better husband. Your house burned down. Good, because God's working all things, all things to burn your house down for the good, which means He's going to bring you a better house. Like, like you got cancer. Oh man, that's because God is going to turn your test into a testimony when He heals you. Like, you you missed your flight, that's okay. God is saving you from traffic on the other side of your flight. Like he's working it for your good. Your house didn't sell, no problem. God has a better offer coming. That deal fell through, God has something better on the horizon. And that's the way we use this and and maybe maybe that's true. From my mouth to God's
2: ear. In the name of Jesus, let it be so. But that's not the promise. That's not the promise. The promise is that
1: he is going to use whatever you are going through for your good to make you more like Jesus, to be conformed into the image of his son. That's the good he's trying to accomplish in your life. He's going to use that cancer to make you look more like Jesus whether he heals you or not. He's going to work out for your good the burning down of your house to make you more like Jesus even if you have to live every day of the rest of your life in a tent. He is working your bankruptcy for your good to make you more like Jesus even if you're broke for the rest of your days. He is working that divorce for your good, not necessarily to set you up for another spouse, but to make you more like Jesus. That is the good that he's promising. And we have done this text a disservice when we have attached to this promise material gains rather than spiritual change. Let me say that again. We have done this text a disservice when we've tried to attach to this promise material gains rather than spiritual change. This is not a promise for material gains that it's going to go better for you in whatever way you think it's better for you. The promise is, no, no, no. I'm going to use that suffering to make you more like
2: Jesus. God will work all things for your good. And that good
1: is turn you into the image of his son. And he will do it. He will do it. And he's going to finish what he started. That's the end of this verse. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. That he, meaning Jesus, Jesus might be the firstborn. When you have a firstborn, what does that imply? There's more to follow. You have a firstborn, that's because there's a second, third, and fourth coming. Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's you and that's me. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. In other words, he's going to finish what he started. That he has predestined us to be like Jesus in his son. That Jesus is the firstborn to be raised to glory And all of those who follow in the footsteps of Jesus, with the faith of Jesus, we become heirs of Christ, co-heirs with Christ. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is our older brother. We're changing in in our image to be made like him. And what this text says is that when he did that, he's going to follow through. He predestined, he called, he called, he justified, justified. He will glorify.
2: He's going to finish what he started. He's going to do in us what he did in Jesus, which means he's going to resurrect us. He's going to give us
1: a body that is transformed, a mind that is transformed, and lives
2: that are eternally desiring to follow our Father. He's going to give us a place. Put our love into action for eternity. He's going to use it. Whatever suffering you're going through,
1: for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who love Him, He's going to use it
2: to make you look more like Jesus. So hang on. His glory's coming. Father, we are grateful that we don't have to suffer alone, but we.
1: We have the promise that you are, you're going to use it no matter what pain it is, you're going to use it in us to make us look more like Jesus. And my prayer is today that as we walk out, we would cling to not some kind of temporary fulfillment of this promise that I get a better house or a better car or a better job because something got taken. No, no, that we have an eternal, we have an eternal perspective on this promise. That is, you're making me like Jesus so that I can love you forever. Help us to hang on to the eternal promise.
2: In Jesus we pray. Amen.